If you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, we will begin in verse 1. Hebrews 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word that we have heard so far through the songs that we have sung and through discussing uh, your word leading up to this service, I pray that uh, you would even more so build in our hearts the love that we're to have for one another. It is so good when your people live this way together as we have just sung. Give us understanding, give us a will to obey. These things are from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, we talked about verse 1 in, for the entire service and talked about the nature of brotherly love and the importance of brotherly love in the context of acceptable worship. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 12, the conclusion of this great vision of Sinai or the things that can be touched versus Zion, the thing that cannot be touched, what we have come to, he says, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. So the aim of the Christian life really is to worship God. But we're not left to ourselves to answer the question, what is acceptable worship? The Bible tells us exactly what acceptable worship is. And mainly, at least for the author of Hebrews, verse 1 of chapter 13 is brotherly love. It's one word in Greek, Philadelphia, which is, like I said last week, ironic because they're a mean city sometimes. But Philadelphia, or brotherly affection, is what worship of God that is acceptable looks like. You can't isolate yourself from the people of God and claim to be very loving. That's what he's saying. And love is not just a feeling. It's not just a feeling towards our brothers. I just really cherish them in my heart. You know, that's, that's not brotherly love. I gave you seven rules for brotherly love, because you have to make any list biblical. Biblical or otherwise, it needs to be seven. Seven's the good number, right? So here are the seven rules I gave you for brotherly love last week. We'll revisit them because they do inform and they help us tease out, I think, some of what's being said in verses 2 through 3. Number one, someone alone in our meetings is an emergency. Number two, friends can wait. Number three, help others build new relationships. Number four, a good Sunday is finding and sharing another's burden. Number five, Be better at listening than talking, which is hard for me because I have to talk a lot. Number six, find an opportunity to remind someone of our hope. We can talk about a lot of stuff and never get around to reminding someone of our hope. And number seven, joy is your job. It is your job. It is your obligation. It is a command to you to rejoice. If you don't feel like it, it doesn't matter. It's your job. Be joyful. So those are the rules that we... Uh, that I gave you, I stole some of them, but that's okay because the other person was a Christian. We have all things in common. So um, we that helps us understand or flesh out what brotherly love looks like in our Sunday gatherings or when we're here together. But these verses, verses 2 and 3, help us understand what it means outside of this room, outside of our weekly gatherings. So, let's look at it. We need to answer the question, what does brotherly love look like in a very practical way? In these two verses we read about showing hospitality to strangers and remembering those who are in prison and who are ill-treated actually parallels quite nicely with Matthew 25. If you want to turn there, you can do so. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. So the author of Hebrews said in chapter 2 that 
we heard from those who heard, right? So he's saying that Jesus ministered here on earth and told his apostles and those who followed him. And this author, the author of Hebrews, heard from them. And what they heard was the teaching of Christ. So keep in your minds what we just read in verses 2 and 3 to show hospitality to strangers, to remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. And then we'll look at Matthew 25. So this is the teaching of Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then we will, He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd shep- separates sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer and say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Loving Jesus is manifested through loving his people. Simon Peter, do you love me? Don't go and isolate yourself and read the, the Torah over and over or the law or think through all the things that I taught you over and over again all by yourself. That's important. But feed my sheep. You love me? Feed my lambs. You love me? Feed my sheep. They're inseparable. So I think the author of Hebrews is riffing on what he at least heard the teaching of Jesus was from Matthew 25. So keep that in mind as we go through these verses. It's kind of a summary So he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So in light of everything that's been said, we need to remember he's not changing subjects. It's not like we have brotherly love over here and hospitality to strangers over here. They're they're connected. And it's important, I think, that we define hospitality. What comes to your mind when you think of that word? When I say to you, oh, they were very hospitable, or um, we have a hospitality ministry, or uh, I would like to show hospitality, or they they showed me hospitality. What, What comes to our minds? I think we can be, at the same time, both too narrow and too broad in our definitions. And it's important that we answer what it is because we're commanded to show it, right? If we if we think it's something that it's not, then it's not going to count as obedience. Um, It might be very zealous, but not according to knowledge. So I'm from the South, okay? And so when I hear the word hospitality, uh, certain things come to mind that aren't necessarily biblical. So you can think of a lot of sweet tea or a rocking chair on a porch or doilies on the table, Um, dimitas cups, if you know what that is, and uh, you know, there's got to be a pot roast. And so these are all things, or maybe chicken fried steak, depending on where you're from in the South. So all of these things adhere to the definition, if you will, of hospitality, or at least our received definition. But should we think that? I think we should avoid it because it can cause you to neglect hospitality if you have a too narrow definition or overly cultural a culturally informed definition of hospitality. Because you can think on the one hand, well, I don't possess the stuff to be able to show hospitality, if that's what we're thinking in our minds. If we're thinking that it's got to be this over here, and we don't have the stuff that allows us to do this, then I guess I just don't have to show hospitality because I don't have any ability. And then on the other hand, if we think it's too narrow, then we could say, well, that person won't appreciate it. Right? There, there are cultural differences. And so if you're from a very southern culture and someone else is from maybe, I don't know, Middle Eastern culture, like, well, I don't know if they would appreciate this type of hospitality. I'm supposed to show hospitality. I don't know what to do. So you can be too narrow. And on the other hand, we can be too broad. 
You can have just a willy-nilly, haphazard kind of come over and hang out. Now, is that hospitality? I don't think so. I don't think that's what he's saying here, especially. There's nothing intentional about it. We're just kind of persisting or existing in the same room. And it just happens to be your room or your house. That's not hospitality. In the Greek, this is just actually one word. When he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Show hospitality to strangers. Three words in English, or at least the ESV. But it's one word in Greek. Here's kind of a literal rendering. The hospitable love do not forget. It's paralleled with brotherly love. We, we, we take that one word, Philadelphia, the brotherly affection, and we kind of understand what it means, but that's the same type of structure here. It's one word. The love of hospitality, or the love that happens in the confines of the host and guest relationship. That's what he's talking about. It speaks of love expressed through showing hospitality. It's not just being hospitable, it is being loving in that context. The attitude in your heart is what's important. Way more important than what you're able to put on the table, so to speak. Way more important than how nice your house is, is the attitude, your desire to show love to someone through hospitality. So here's my definition, if you will, if you'll allow me to give you this. And this is drawing from a lot of strings from Scripture, but here it is. I think hospitality is using what you have to bless individuals, especially those in need, by intentionally meeting both their physical and spiritual needs. I'll give it to you again. Using what you have to bless individuals, especially those in need, By intentionally meeting both their physical and spiritual needs. I'll break it down a little bit and show you where this comes from biblically. Using what you have. And you don't have to have much. (laughs) The time in my married life, we were were newlyweds, we had a one-bedroom apartment. I've told some of you the story. I think it was around 500 square feet. So it was literally our bedroom, the bathroom, and then the Entryway, kitchen, dining room, living room, all in one thing. It was smaller than some of the classrooms we have in this building. And we were able to show hospitality out of that very small footprint, if you will, in some ways more than we ever have been since. We had a home group over at our place. And in some cases, we had 15 to 20 people in that little room. And when you arrived, if you arrived late, there was just like a slice of carpet. Like, that's your seat. (laughs) We saved it for you. Here it is. Sit down. Uh, That's all you got. But we were showing hospitality, and everyone felt, I think, at least as far as they would tell us, that we were ministering to them. Think of John the Baptist. What he teaches is if you have two cloaks, and you know that your brother is cold and needs a cloak, give him your cloak. That's maybe generally uh, generosity, but John himself is living out there in the wilderness. He's probably showing hospitality just by teaching. This is his house, kind of, on the banks of the Jordan. And he's welcoming people into his space, using what he has to bless them. You don't have to have a lot. And we're blessing individuals. The object is people. You have to have a person, a real, live, kicking individual in mind or in your sights in order for this to count. We can talk a lot about being a loving person, a kind individual, but never get around to actually being kind and loving to real people. It's just kind of a general thing. We want to be helpful in a general way and not get super specific about those people that bother us, maybe. So you have to be seeking to love real people, not just being a loving person in general. It's sort of like James talks about if you've got the world's possessions and you see your brother in need and you say, be warmed and filled, I'll pray for you. That's just kind of the generally loving person and he's not allowing it to be specific, the person that God brings into your life right in front of you who needs help. You have to have real people in mind, especially those in need. 
And I think this is where um, the word strangers, if you're looking at it in the ESV, I think that's a little bit misleading because what comes to our mind when we think of stranger is someone we don't know at all, right? We have no connection to. Um, But like I said, it's just one word. I think the idea, though, is that if you're a stranger in the first century, you're usually traveling. You're usually going from one place to another. So he's saying to them, be sure to minister to those who don't have a place to stay, a stranger. And so for our purposes, what I think we should take this to mean is that those who are in need, in whatever way that they're in need, we should seek to bless them. And that's why I use hospitable love in my attempt to translate. Here's what uh, one commentator said, this, this word shows a delight in the guest-host relationship through which there can be mutual exchange of unanticipated gifts that brings refreshment to one another. I think it's important that we kind of use the Good Samaritan principle in our thinking about hospitality. And I think the point of that parable in Jesus' interaction with the the religious leaders, is don't be concerned, don't be overly concerned about who your neighbor is or who your neighbor isn't, or for our purposes here, who's a stranger and who's not. The question is, who has God providentially ordained to place in front of you who really needs help? So there's proximity. He's walking along the road to Jericho, and there's a guy in the ditch. Is he a stranger? Ah, I don't know. Is he my neighbor? I'm not sure, but he needs help. He has knowledge because he sees he's been beat up and he needs care. So he's, he's close to him. He knows about it. And he has opportunity. He actually has stuff. He has money. And he has a donkey, a beast, the text says. And he carries him to the next town and sets him up and takes care of him. That is what it means, I think, to show hospitality. And there's no house involved there except for the inn when they finally get to Jericho. And there was a lot of travel happening in the early church, right? Rome ensured that there was kind of peace throughout the empire. And you see this with Paul. He's traveling from place to place, and he depends on the hospitality of people in towns that he hasn't been to before to show him hospitality so he can continue on in the work that he's doing. So... I don't think the idea is that we should just go find some random person and invite them over for dinner. And that's what it means to show hospitality to strangers. Um, It's not a bad idea just to go find some random person and say, hey, uh, you're coming over to my house for dinner. Um, You might not know what you're getting into, but not a terrible idea. Not unbiblical, but the point here, I think, is more specific and more intentional. Here's uh, Lane, uh, the commentary I was working through with this. He says, the extension of hospitality provided a practical measure for identifying with brothers and sisters, including many who were as yet unknown. It served to expand the network of interdependence that unites the family of God. That's why we sang the song that we, uh, several of the songs that we sang this morning to underscore this idea. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So he's not talking about love for one another in in the context of their local church necessarily, though that could be part of it. He's mainly talking about their help and assistance towards the saints, those who are broadly Christians, those who are coming in and out of that town, going and seeing and doing different things. So I don't think it's limited to believers, We should be the most loving people in the world. We should be showing love and hospitality to anyone who needs help, just like the Good Samaritan. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is. If you need help and God's providentially ordained that you're in front of me and I have the resources and means to help you in some way, I'm going to. I think that's what we should be thinking about. But I think our love for people in general grows as we prioritize love within the family of God. He says, seek to show good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Our priority should be towards our brothers and sisters. And just to be honest, I've seen many people who have begun to prioritize love of non-Christians. Like they get kind of tired of the church. 
You say, oh, it's just full of hypocrites. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. They might be Christians too. But I'll, I'll just go and love the people who are hurting and broken, non-Christians. We'll, folk, that, we'll let that be the epicenter of my love. And eventually, it begins to break down. And in many cases, they apostatize. So the emphasis, the epicenter should be love for one another. And then out of that flows love, hospitable love for non-Christians. And I think we should be intentional. So in the definition I gave you, I said, by intentionally meeting the needs of other people. I think we, you need to plan ahead. You've got to plan ahead. It's a team effort. And it takes prayer and planning to be able to meet someone's need. And she's not here today because we have a sick child. But Beth, my wife, is the engine of our ministry of hospitality. Uh, if it were just me, you might be able to come over and there might be a slab of meat there for you to eat, but there might not be much else for you to enjoy when you come over to the house. It's a team effort. We've got to work together and plan and take intentional steps to be able to show hospitality. This intentionality is spoken about in Hebrews when he says, consider one another, right? We, we talked about this at length in chapter 10 when we were there. Consider one another how to stir up love and good works, right? He's not saying consider how to stir up love and good works. He says, set your thoughts on your brothers and sisters, how you might stir them up for love and good works. It's intentional. It takes thought. It takes a plan. It can't be haphazard. And I honestly think that influences how you build your home or buy your home. One of our professors in college when we were there, he was a missionary in China before he came over to teach us at Southwestern Seminary, and he told us that the reason he bought the house he did was because of the large living room. And it was kind of a long dining room, living room situation. He said, we we bought this house, this specific one. There may have been better deals, there may have been better situations, but we bought this one so that we could have students over, and a lot of students over, and over and over. I think that is the heart of what he's saying here. It, It takes planning. It's intentional. And if you're waiting around for opportunities to come to show hospitality, they probably won't come very frequently. Ladies, is haphazard preparation on the part of your man very romantic when he wants to take you on a date or do something nice for you? If it's just kind of stream of consciousness, planning, does that that stir your affections for your husband? This is one of the reasons I dislike the, the whole love language matrix. If you love it, I'm sorry, and it's not a huge deal. I just think we, as Christians, we should let love be genuine, right? And it doesn't necessarily matter what, what uh, dialect of love you speak. If it's genuine and someone is putting intention and thought and reason and, and resources into doing it, that, that should be received. But haphazardness, even if it's the same dialect of love you speak, isn't going to mean a whole lot to you shouldn't. Paul says in Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. And that's what we should do. And the last part of the definition I gave you, and I hope you see I'm trying to draw strings together from throughout Scripture to kind of show us what this is so we don't have a misunderstanding of what hospitality is. By meeting their physical and spiritual needs, both have to be present. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones, speaking of his disciples, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So there is eternal, (laughs) this is what's amazing about the teachings of Jesus, there is eternal consequence and reward in the smallest, most menial, uh, just, just tiny little acts that we do for each other. Giving someone a cup of water, Because they belong to Jesus, you will by no means, like it's an intense statement, you will certainly by no means lose your reward. So we're supposed to meet physical needs. We shouldn't be so spiritual that we don't acknowledge that there's eternal reward for meeting physical needs. But we must also meet spiritual needs as well. And I think this spiritual needs is where we we fall short in many cases. As those of you who were here when we were in chapter 3 of Hebrews know for sure, exhort one another every day. He's not saying uh, give each other a cup of water every day or have everyone over for dinner every day. 
right? We have limited resources, but you must exhort one another every day. You can meet someone's spiritual needs through exhortation every single day. And Paul says to the Romans, think of this. Paul writes Romans, he tells us, to incur financial support so that he can continue his missionary journey to Gaul. Okay? So that's the main reason he's writing it. And it's essentially a self-letter of recommendation. Like, you see that I believe the gospel, you should send me on my way. But he opens the letter by saying, I have desired to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. I want to come so that I can strengthen you. That is, that we might be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. So he, this is a guy who's essentially saying, I'm going to come to you soon, and I'm expecting that you will give me financial support to continue my ministry, but I'm also there to encourage you and for you to encourage me spiritually. That's what's happening, and it's, it's kind of stunning once you put it all together that way. But that's what Paul's expectation is, and frankly, that's my agenda whenever I meet with any one of you that we might be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. There might be other reasons that we're meeting, but meeting physical needs is great, but we've got to be encouraging each other, encouraging each other in the faith. So what's the motivation? So we kind of described biblical hospitality. You don't need a house. You don't need a lot of stuff. Just use whatever you have to bless individuals intentionally by meeting their spiritual and physical needs. So what's the motivation? And he says this, For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It's an interesting statement. It's without parallel, apparently, in the time that this was written. So what's going on here? I want to say a few things about this. I don't think that what he's saying is that we should show hospitality just on the off chance that we'll have an angel over for dinner, right? I don't think that's what he's saying, like that you'll hit the lotto and something. It's like, man, I've been showing hospitality all my life to these little Christians over here. And then finally, you know, 50 years of showing hospitality, I finally get to show hospitality to an angel and have them over for dinner. I don't think that's what's happening. That would be very strange as a motivation for the heart of a Christian, right? Shouldn't it be to bless the people of God, right? We should want to love our brothers and sisters, and out of that flow of hospitality. It shouldn't be, we shouldn't delude the motivations. Um, like, like, think of the, the Good Samaritan, if we were to interview him, right? Say, hey, why, why did you show hospitality to, to the guy beat up in the, in the ditch? Like, well, you know, it's been 15 years, I've been picking up every guy in a ditch I could find, just hoping one day that one of them's going to be an angel. It didn't, ha- didn't turn out this time, so we'll keep continuing. Like, that, that would kind of Uh, fracture the point of the story, right? You should have love for the real person in front of you, whoever they are, just given the fact that they have a need. That should be enough. I think this is most likely, this this is kind of consensus view, this is a reference to the story of Abraham. Do you remember what happened? There Abraham is, he's got his tent set up, he's minding his own business, and you have three visitors come and just appear to him. The text doesn't say he sees them from far. They're just kind of there. And he, he tells Sarah, or Sarai, his, his wife, you know, hey, we've got to slaughter the calf. We've got to make a really nice meal. And they, they, basically, they spend like, like all day showing hospitality to these three visitors. And so I think that is where we should place our minds. And here's that story to help us understand what he's saying here. And I, I think the emphasis seems to be that God blesses and accomplishes his purposes through normal giving and receiving of blessings in the context of hospitality. That was a long sentence, but the idea is essentially this. God works powerfully through the normal showing of hospitality. So as Abraham, and here's what happens at the encounter with Abraham, as they're just serving a meal to these three mysterious visitors, God gives the promise that Sarah will have a son. That's the context where it happens. And so I think we need to view that the same way. Judgment itself is seen in the context of an absence of hospitality. We don't have time to go through this at length. But when you get to the story of uh, Jesus sending out the 72, he tells them, go into all the towns and do these certain things. You have one verse about their preparation 
one verse about uh, a warning, you have two verses about what they're supposed to say, and then you have five or six verses, depending on how you count, about who to say with. And, and how to know whether the house that you're going to is a good place to stay and how long to stay there. Like if Jesus were sending you out to heal people and cast out demons and preach the kingdom, wouldn't you want a little bit more preparation on those other things like warnings and do's and don'ts and what to say and how to deal with certain situations? And maybe they knew some of that just because they had seen Jesus do it. But the majority of his instructions are about who to stay with, how long to stay there and when to leave. So the hospitality of the people in these towns was to be the superstructure of how the ministry would happen. So God's purposes, I think, work through this very domestic showing and receiving of love. We should look for opportunities to show hospitable love. And as we do that, God will work powerfully. I think that's the point. The powers of heaven seem to flow through this sacred act of showing love in the context of our homes or whatever you have. So this helps us answer the question. And I think this this whole topic of hospitality helps us reorient a few things of our thinking. Where are the front lines of Christian ministry? It's your dinner table. It's your coffee table, your recliner, your couch, or as the case may be, at a coffee shop. Those are the front lines of ministry, where you're talking with someone and giving and receiving mutual encouragement, blessing and receiving blessing. And I want to give an an encouragement to the younger people, because in in all this discussion, uh, I think if you don't own a house, or it's going to be a very long time before you own your own house, there can be like, well, I don't know how this relates to me at all. But what if I told you that you had access to, and in some sense you even own, a building that's bigger than most of our homes, designed specifically for people gathering, and a guarantee, at least (laughs) post-COVID, that there will be people at that place multiple times a week. Because that's what you have in the church young people, and those who don't have much, right? This, this isn't just for young people. Like, the, there can be a discouragement like, well, I don't have the ability to bless or show hospitality to anyone. Have you seen my house? Have you seen uh, the situation I'm in? Maybe that's the case. But this is one of the advantages of us as a church owning and sharing a church facility. You can be a healthy church without one. But every time we gather here, or wherever we would gather, even if we were renting, you need to pretend, if you will, that this is your house, and that everyone who walks through that door is your honored guest, and you will answer for how you hosted them while you were here, and they were here. And actually, you shouldn't pretend, because that's actually what is going on when you're here. This building is in some sense yours. It's ours, but it's yours. If you're a member of this church or in family with someone who is. <laughs> and when people come, it's, it's the same Good Samaritan principle. Anyone that God, through his providential care, has put in front of you who has a need. That happens a lot every Sunday morning. And you have, you have a great big house <laughs> and resources, and it's built and designed for people gathering. It's just one way. It's not the only way. Apply that definition I gave you to your time in this building. That's why I do think we should keep some sense of the word stranger, or the people that you don't know well. That's what informs the, the second rule of brotherly love that I gave you at the beginning. Friends can wait. That you're here to show hospitality to the people who come through that door, as if this were your home. And I could talk about the idea of Uh, the idea of hospitality, the practice of hospitality for a long time, but we need to move on to the next verse, and then we'll go faster, I promise. So that was the first view or vision of hospitality, that we're bringing people in, that you're intentionally going out and, and, and drawing people into your sphere, whatever that sphere is, and you're blessing them, meeting in some sense their physical and spiritual needs. But now we see the other version of hospitality. 
and that is to go to the people who are hurting. It's not just bringing people in, it's going out. And he says, remember, remember those who are in prison. And he's not just saying, draw them to your mind, like think about them. You know, like uh, if you post a need or a concern on social media now or sending good thoughts your way, that doesn't help anyone. So don't say that, don't do that. Thinking about someone doesn't help them. This remembering has, has the flavor of what Paul says in Philippians. I, I rejoice that you have now revived your concern for me. And that concern was their financial support of him, likely while he was in prison. And because they revived their concern for him, we get the letter to the Philippians, which is amazing. It kind of shows how God's providence works. While a church is showing hospitality to a guy in prison, we get part of the New Testament. Okay, So, we're to remember them in the sense of this. We're supposed to think and intentionally plan how we're to show care and love for the people who are in these situations. So who? Who are we to show this to? To those who are in prison. It's an impossible to read this text without going back to chapter 10. If you would turn to chapter 10, verses 32 through 35. This is Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 32 through 35. He says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you might receive what is promised. So they were doing this. They had already shown compassion to those who were in prison. So he's essentially telling them, don't stop. Remember that this is what you did. This is evidence of their conversion, he's saying. Like we, he, he says in multiple other places, this, this kind of binary of falling away or staying consistent. And in this place, what he looks to, to see that they're going to stay consistent and they're not false converts, is their love for those in prison. And there's, there's all sorts of evidence of Christians doing this in the early church. I was going to read a long, uh, it's not really long, several sentences, but... Uh, there's these historical events of non-Christian historians writing down how the Christians were showing love to each other for those who were in prison for the name of Christ. There was a situation where someone bribed guards so that he could go in and sleep beside the cell of the Christian who was in prison. Right? It's that level of trying to identify, remembering those who are in prison for the sake of the name of Christ. So how are we to remember this? How, what, what is the means and, and what is the, uh, the measure of how we're to show this uh, care, this hospitable care for those who are in prison? He says, as though you were in prison with them. What if you were to have a clone of yourself? If you're in prison for the name of Christ and you have a clone of yourself outside of the cell... What would that person outside of the cell be doing for the one inside the cell? You can't break them out, like don't think that. But what would that person outside be doing to help the person inside? That's the degree of identification and care and love that he's talking about. As if you were in there, do what you would do on the outside as if it were you in there. And these last 12 months have just made this very, very hard. Um, for almost half of my pastoral ministry now, I haven't even been allowed to go into hospitals. Thankfully, I haven't had the need to do so as a visitor for very many. But in several cases, I just asked, like, will they even let me in? And the answer is no. The enemy has cut off our lines of support in many ways for over a year. And we haven't seen the full repercussions of this yet. We need to be better and work against, against all forms of isolation. Do whatever we can to give people who are 
homebound or bound in the hospital or bound in prison who are Christians a sense of the belonging that we have in the body of Christ. He also shows us the why. Why should we do this? Because we are in some sense there in prison with them. It's not just that we should imagine that it is the case, that as if I were in there with them, but we need to acknowledge that we have union in the body of Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. I don't think the the author is saying that explicitly, this theology of the body of Christ. It doesn't really show up in Hebrews, but uh, at least in that language. But I think this is how we should understand it. As if you were there with them, you should identify it. For you to suffer is for me to suffer. So, who else are we to show this hospitality to? This is the other version of hospitality. Those who are mistreated. Not just those who are in prison, but those generally who are mistreated. Again, I think it echoes back to chapter 10, verse 32 and through 35. He says, partners, he says, uh, this is verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So they intentionally sought out solidarity with those who were mistreated. There's a special and central place for care for the unjustly treated in the life that is controlled by the love of Christ. When the love of Christ is the center of your heart, the throbbing center, the burning center of your affections, then you will care for the afflicted and the downtrodden and the outcast. You can't interpret the ministry of Jesus any other way, especially those who are so treated because they are believers. So, it's difficult sometimes for us to find practical ways to make this happen because, you know, we're so isolated in some cases. But I think we need to have a broader understanding of who's mistreated. You don't have to wait until someone is on trial for being a Christian to find solidarity with them, okay? There are all sorts of levels of mistreatment. And every Christian that you encounter in this room or outside is being mistreated in some way. We have an enemy who prowls around seeking whom he may devour. People sin against us all the time. We sin against them too, of course, but we are sinned against all the time and we have a ferocious enemy trying to undo us all the time. Every Christian is being mistreated somehow. And I'm not saying that to create a victim mentality or a pity party, but to encourage you to do this to show love, to show hospitality, to remember those who are mistreated in our midst. So being here, there's a powerful ministry of presence, just being with someone, identifying with someone. And how are we to do this? What's the motivation? What is the thought process to help us love someone this way? He says, since you are also in the body. So here's the why. I don't think he's talking explicitly about the body of Christ. I think it carries more of the sense of this. Since you are in the flesh, or since you are flesh and blood too, and you're exposed to the same risks, because we have the capacity to show empathy on the basis of our being human, we should show empathy and hospitality out of that empathy to those who are being mistreated. Because we're humans too. I think that's what he's saying. And it also shows us the how. He says, in the body, since you are also in the body, since you know what you would want and need if you were in that situation, if you were being mistreated like your brother and sister in Christ, you know you're in the body too. You know what things would bless. You know what things would encourage. You know what things would build up. So do those things. This is just an extension of the golden rule. Whatever you wish that someone would do for you, you do to them. We know because we're human. We have, we have these shared experiences. I think this also alludes to our limitations. He says, since you are also in the flesh. It's just an acknowledgement that we're frail. No one is a demigod. 
We're not superheroes. We have the spirit, but we don't have the ability to just excel and knock it out of the park and hustle forever, right? We're tired, broken, and weak people, and we're mistreated. So because you know that that is the case for all your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you should remember them. And I think it's also a reminder of what we really need. Just like Peter says to the cripple. Peter's in the flesh. He doesn't have all the gold and silver to help all the poor people everywhere. But he says, but what I do have, I will give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you, walk. We have the gospel and we can give it to anyone and everyone who's hurting. And that's why one of the rules of brotherly love is remind someone of our hope. You're in the body too. You have the frailties and weaknesses and all of this stuff. And the only thing that can really help us break out of this cycle of futility that we've gotten ourselves in because of our own sin, it is our fault, is the hope of the gospel. And I think on that note, it is impossible to read instructions like this in Hebrews and not remember what he has said about our Lord. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The summons to hospitality is a summons to reenact the ministry of Jesus in his incarnation. What he came to do, how he came to live among us is what we get to act out in our love for each other in the body. You are also in the body, just like Jesus was. And then chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who through every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The most hospitable person who ever lived, whoever will live, was Jesus himself. And he had no place to lay his head. He identified with us in our flesh, intentionally incurring mistreatment so that he could have solidarity with us and that his love would be that much more meaningful He had to depend on the hospitality of others and the generosity of others while he was here. And he gave up what he had. He gave himself and suffered mistreatment to bring us into his home. The gospel scene in this way is really just a major narrative arc of God showing hospitality to us. There are things that disqualify us to enter God's house, our sin. And so Jesus comes and intentionally takes on flesh, takes on our frailties, takes on the mistreatment that we were all in the muck and mire of, dies in our place, takes the ultimate mistreatment and injustice on his own account so that we could be welcomed into the household of God as honored guests. So it's not just another command to show hospitality. It is displaying the gospel as we do so. So as we conclude, I I want to give an encouragement and just voice appreciation and gratitude from the Shirey family to all of the church. We have received a ton (laughs) of hospitality and love from all of you. And some of you have done things that I'm kind of embarrassed to have received because it was so generous. And, uh, It's hard to put into words how thankful we are for your hospitality and love for us. And so just to follow the apostolic example, obviously not directed primarily towards us, but just continue. Let that continue and let it marinate through the entire family of God. I mean, it was difficult leaving family and moving up here over two years ago, but we've been very greatly and generously received and we're thankful Secondly, just an encouragement. If you don't know where to start, if, if your whole life, as I've described biblical hospitality and how it's connected to the gospel, and, and you're like, I, I just don't know where to, to begin or what to even start doing, you can start with this. To become a shareholder 
or a partner in someone else's showing of hospitality. So you see someone else doing it well, you can just ask them, hey, how can I help you do that better? So you can go over to their house and help them show hospitality, right? It's that simple. And it will count as you showing hospitality and obeying these commands. And third, we're, we're working on becoming better at this as a church as we kind of rebuild some of the structures that were lost post or uh, pre that, that were in, in place pre-COVID and just kind of went away. A lot of plans that were in the making that just got stunted and destroyed immediately. So we're in the process of putting those structures together to help us be in a pattern of showing hospitality to each other. So keep your ears perked for announcements coming out about how we can do that. And lastly, uh, if you got the email, if you didn't, don't worry about it. Um, but tonight, you'll have an opportunity to show To show solidarity with those who are mistreated. I'm sorry for those who are visiting. If you don't know, it's okay. Um, I don't want to get into the details, but uh, you can pray. It's one of the best ways we show Hospitality and love for each other is asking the one who can help in ways that we're just unable to. Pray with me. Father, we, um, we thank you that you sent your son, to welcome us into your home. Give us the strength and the zeal to do the same thing. Just help us through this day. Um, Many of us are broken and heartbroken and tired, but we know that you're faithful, and so give us the faith that we need to pray. Um, help us tonight especially show love and remember those who are mistreated. In Jesus' name, amen.